And now, a message from Pastor Michael Carmody. Um, yeah, so it's good to see everybody. We are in a series right now. We're studying the book of Galatians. Uh, the subject matter is um, faith alone. Uh, we're talking about faith alone is able to save us. It's not faith and anything. And we're going through the book of Galatians and talking about this subject. Um, and so we've been kind of um, sharing how that the, the, the book of Galatians was written to several churches um, who were in the region of Galatia. Paul the Apostle had started these churches, and he started these churches as he did with all churches under a New Testament or a New Covenant concept of grace and mercy, that God has chosen to love us and extend his grace and mercy to us, and that's why we can consider ourselves to be Christians, saved, set free, whatever you want to call it. We are part of his kingdom because of his grace and his mercy extended to us. Somebody help me out, and I'll move on. Right, so... Um, Paul had established these churches, started these churches under that teaching, but somewhere along the line, someone had crept in and began to teach that the, the people in the churches in Galatia needed to go back to uh, the concept of circumcision, which was an Old Testament concept. It's how God actually identified, told Abraham that he would identify his people through the work of circumcision. And so there was this teaching that they should go back to uh, circumcision, and Paul was explaining to them that that was not only not necessary, but that it would be a huge mistake to do that. And just as kind of a side thought, just tuck this away somewhere in the back of your mind somewhere. God does not go backwards. And he doesn't lead us backwards. Listen to me, folks. There is nothing to go back to. Back is gone. What's ahead is where God's leading us to. And so he leads us forward. And anything that you think was better in your life in the past than it is now, this is only a break before things get even better yet if we stay connected to God. Don't ever want to go back to something that was better. The good old days are a myth. The good days are ahead of you. The old days are just old. So let's just keep moving, shall we? The older I get, the more I realize I better keep moving. I mean, I'm 63 years old. It's not going to be too long. I'm going to hit the halfway point in this journey, you know, and I'm going to have, I'm going to have more, more behind me than ahead of me, but I'm not there yet. Um, but at some point that happens, right? So we have to keep moving. This idea of going, any, anytime you hear, well, we need to get back to, just immediately think, no, there's nothing to go back to. We go ahead. We move forward. You all with me? So this is what Paul's kind of teaching them, uh, this idea that he'd been relating the fact that when God met Abraham, Abraham was told to do some things, and I'll break this down a little bit more in a minute, but Abraham was told to do some things. He did them by faith, and that caused Abraham to be righteous with God, right with God. 430 years later, the law came along through Moses, and the nation of Israel lived by those 613 laws for a few thousand years until Jesus came and he fulfilled those 613 laws and gave two laws, love God and love others. And um, Paul, is actually, Paul is actually saying here that what that, that law that came after Abraham didn't nullify what God did with Abraham through faith. That was always God's intention is that his people would live by faith, not by the following of a bunch of laws. So you and I today, it's not about us following laws, it's about us accepting God by faith, letting his mercy, his grace work in us and change us by faith, and letting us become the people that God always intended his church to be on the earth, and that happens by faith, Amen. not by following a bunch of raw laws and rules and regulations. Y'all with me? Amen. 
And so Paul is expounding on these things uh, throughout these verses in Galatians. Then we get to this portion, and I always accuse Pastor Josh of giving me the more challenging messages in these series. Um, but we, we get equally challenging messages. But anyway, this one, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. I'm going to read this and follow along with me as well as you can. And over the next 22 and a half minutes, I'm going to break this down, and we're going to get a better understanding of it, and then our service will be over. You all ready? Here we go. Tell me now, you who have become so enamored with the law, have you paid close attention to that law? Abraham, remember, had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The son of the slave woman was born by human connivance. The son of the free woman was born by God's promise. This illustrates the very thing we are dealing with now. The two births represent two ways of being in relationship with God. One is from Mount Sinai in Arabia. It corresponds with what is now going on in Jerusalem, a slave life producing slaves as offspring. This is the way of Hagar. In contrast to that, there is an invisible Jerusalem, a free Jer Jerusalem, and she is our mother. This is the way of Sarah. Remember what Isaiah wrote. Rejoice, barren women who bear no children. Shout and cry out, woman who has no birth pangs, because the children of the barren woman now surpasses the children of the chosen woman. Isn't it clear, friends, that you, like Isaac, are children of promise? In the days of Hagar and Sarah, the child who came from faithless connivance, Ishmael, harassed the child who came empowered by the Spirit from the faithful promise, Isaac. Isn't it clear that the harassment you are now experiencing from the Jerusalem heretics follows that old pattern? There is a scripture that tells us what to do. Expel the slave mother with her son, for the slave, for the slave son will not inherit with the free son. Isn't that conclusive? We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Wow. So in here we read about Hagar, we read about Sarah, we read about Ishmael, we read about Isaac. We read about slave children and free children and a spiritual Jerusalem and a real Jerusalem. And we read about things like Mount Sinai and Arabia. And I don't know about you, but I could look at this and say, I don't get it. What is this all about? And even if, especially if you don't understand the Old Testament story of Abraham, and even if you do, there's a little, I don't get it. I don't know exactly what he's trying to say here. And so I appreciate the opportunity of having these verses and being able to break them down for you today. And so, um, so I'm, I want to try to make this as simple as possible. But the reason I chose the message translation is for one reason, it keeps using this word connivance, which is just a great word. To connive means this. It's simply um, working secretly or deceptively behind the scenes. And so this idea of conniving something, it's like, a, it's like a secret deceptive kind of working behind the scenes to try to get your own way, to try to get something that you really want. In this case, let's just look at it this way. It was a human attempt to try to produce the promise of God. And here's how that worked. Let me just kind of give you a quick foundation story of this guy, Abraham. So in the middle chapters, the early middle chapters of Genesis, we read about the lineage of Noah. And Noah comes after the flood, and his children come out, and eight generations after Noah, we have this guy by the name of Abram. He's the son of Terah. They live in a city called Ur in Chaldea, which would be today southern Iraq. So they live in southern Iraq. Uh, Terah moves his family. Abram is his son. They all move together up to Haran, which is in southern Syria. And so they do about a 500-mile move up to, up to Haran. In Haran, Terah, the father, dies. And then God speaks to Abram. And says, I want you to leave this land and your, and your father's family, and I want you to move down to Canaan. Now, this is about 500 miles south. This is what we know of today as Israel, or that 
Palestinian area there. And so he, they move as a family up here to Haran, then they move back down. Abram and his family moves down to Canaan. But here's the interesting thing about that. God just speaks to Abram. We don't know anything about Abram. God just speaks to him and says, I want you to move to Canaan, and he does it. Now that takes faith. If you hear a voice say to you, I want you to pack up all your stuff and move halfway around the world, you, you got to have a lot of faith to believe that that voice is worth listening to, right? I mean, that's a big move. And this is literally, I mean, a 500-mile move in those days, that was a significant move. And so Abram and his whole family, he takes his family, he moves, and he goes down to Canaan, which is, um, as I said today, the, the area of Palestine, the area of Israel. And um, so he gives this land, God gives this land to Abraham. And while he's there, he confirms to him a promise, and he tells him that I am going to bless you but not only am I going to bless you, Abraham, I am going to bless the whole world through you. Wow. That's a, again, that's a, pretty big, that's a pretty big promise, isn't it? I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And he said, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bless the whole world through you by giving you a son. And that son will bring about the blessings of God in this world. And we read later now here in, in Galatians that that son literally became, was Jesus, but then we are also the sons of, of Abraham, and so we get to carry this blessing to the world. But that's kind of a side thought. So he, said, he tells him, I'm going to give you a child, and um, that child's going to be a blessing to the world. The problem is, Abram's wife, Sarah, is barren. She is incapable, incapable, excuse me, of having children. So she can't have babies. And the, the clock's ticking. And Abraham is now 86 years old. Well, if you're going to start a family, uh, you know, you might as well do it at 86 because you can't do it any younger, right? And so here he is, 86 years old, and Sarah says, you know, I can't have a child. We don't have any children. How's this promise going to be fulfilled? And then she says this, why don't you take Hagar, my maid? She, we basically kind of own her. She's our slave. She's our maid. Why don't you take Hagar and have a child with her, and we'll raise it as our own? And so Abraham does that. He goes to Hagar, the maid. They have a child together. His name is Ishmael. And um, Ishmael grows up, uh, has 12 children. They become 12 different nations. And they basically become the Arab nations of the world in that time. The interesting thing about that is some years later, uh, when the Jewish um, nation begins to evolve and the 12 tribes of Israel come, these 12 Arab nations are a constant thorn in the flesh to the people of Israel. They're a constant thorn in the flesh to God's chosen people. They're a constant harassment to them. They start fights with them. There's all kinds of things um, that go on with them. And, um, and so we have this, let's go back to the birth of Ishmael, right? So we have the birth of Ishmael. And um, so Ishmael now gets to be about 13 years old. Abraham is 99, Sarah is 89. And God shows up one day and tells Abraham, one year from now, you're going to have, you and Sarah are going to have a baby. And Sarah's in the tent, and she hears these, these angels talking to Abraham and say, your, your wife Sarah's going to have a baby in a year. She's 89 years old. And it says she laughed. Well, it's either that or cry at that point, right? I mean, I mean 89, I'm going to have a baby in a year at the age of 90? I mean, seriously, how many ladies here want to have a baby at the age of 90? You know, it's just not that. Nobody signs up for that, right? And so, um, and, and then you got Abraham, who's 10 years older. He's, he's going to be 100. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to start raising a baby right now. I would, no, I don't want to start one when I'm 100. But here's the deal. So he, he gets this, this word. He said, and this is going to be the promise that I talked about. And so a um, year later, they have Isaac. And the promise begins, and Isaac becomes the great, I'm sorry, the grandfather of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. 
So now we have this conversation that we're reading here in this text about Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and, and Isaac and the bond woman and the free woman and all of this kind of stuff and how that relates to bondage and freedom, how it relates to the law and how it relates to grace. So I want to make this really, really simple for you. Um, I want to set up the ten- This verse, I believe, sets up the tension between a human way of trying to connive, uh, conniving our way into the blessings of God or just receiving what God promised. I have learned that humanity, at least the humanity that lives in me, can be very impatient. And sometimes I want things to happen, and I want them to happen now, and I want them to happen the way I want them to happen. And if we're not really careful, in the process of that, we can create our very own Ishmaels. We can create situations and issues in our life that become a harassment to us later down the road. And so we have to be really careful of this idea of wanting what we want when we want it. And that's really, you know, here's the thing that amazes me. I mean, Abraham is the poster child for faith. Abraham, Father Abraham. He is faithful Father Abraham, the champion of faith. But I'll tell you what, in this situation, he crashed and burned because he and Sarah connived away to try to make the promise of God happen. And in the process, ended up creating an Ishmael that would be a harassment to God's promise and God's plan for millennia couple of things. So I'm going to try to break this down really simple. We either search for wisdom, contentment, hope, guidance in life, and the blessings of God through human connivance, through trying to make it happen ourselves, or we look for those things, wisdom, contentment, hope, guidance in life, and the blessings of God through God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness requires patience. But it's always worth it. I mean, God gave Abraham this promise in Haran at the age of 75. It's fulfilled at the age of 99. Actually, 100. Because the child didn't come. The promise came again at 99, but the baby was born at 100. That's 25 years. How many of you want to get a wonderful promise from God and have to wait 25 years for it to happen? No. You, you know, so like 13 years earlier, you connive your own way to make it happen. Right? Say, so, well, it's got to be time. I'll never forget when I, I, I first got saved and I started feeling this, this desire to teach the word to people and this desire to minister to people. And I was ready to go into the ministry, man. I'm ready to go, you know? And it's like God put the reins on me and settled me down and got me kind of calmed down and taught me some stuff because I'd have been, I'd have caused so much trouble. I would have created so many Ishmaels if I'd have gone out into the ministry when I thought I was ready to go. So God starts working in my life, finally gets me to the point where he launches me, and then I'm like, no, I'm not ready. I'd gotten enough wisdom to know that I wasn't really ready to do this on my own, right? So I knew I'd have to trust God the whole time. And so we either try to connive our way into what we believe are the blessings of God, or we trust God and wait. And that first one, there's some, these, these human connivances. I like that word conniving, because it's just got that, that kind of, I'm just going to make this happen. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going I'm to generate this change, this work myself. And the problem with that is, if I start something, I'm going to have to be the one to continue it. I'm going to have to make, be the one that finishes it. I'm going to have to the one to clean up all the messes from it. But if God starts something and I follow him, if God starts it, he'll finish it. And all I have to do is trust and just keep on walking. You know, with me? So Abraham bombed. He crashed and burned really bad on this one. But you know what's great about that? He's still the father of faith. We still look to Abraham as this great man of faith because he was a great man of faith. Yes, when he blew it, he blew it big. But he also lived for God with a faithful heart. You know what? Sometimes when I blow it, I blow it pretty big. But I want to be the kind of guy who wants to live for God with a faithful heart and be loyal to the call of God in my life. Anybody with me on that? So they got ahead of God. They thought they were going to fulfill the promise of God. Instead, 
They just actually created some problems. So let me just say it again. We Christians do the same thing. We create our own Ishmaels. Let me give you a couple of examples of how I think we do this. One of the things that I've talked about quite a bit in this series is how we sometimes get to the point where we, maybe we've been walking with the Lord a little bit or, you know, or we just get to this place where we start trusting our own ability to do things, say things. We start trusting that, you know, I've been in this a long time. I kind of know what I'm doing. In fact, you know, I've, I've tried to counsel with people in the past at different times. Nobody here, don't look around. Uh, but I've tried to talk with people in the past, and they're just kind of like, oh, I already know all this. I've heard all this. You know, I've already, already got all this. Well, the problem is, we, is there's, a, there's a difference between having this and having this. Having it in our head, having it in our heart, living it out, you know. I have to admit, I know a lot more in my head than I can actually live out on a daily basis most times. And sometimes in the process of doing that, we can create these little Ishmaels that can be a harassment to us for a while. Believe me, I've created some of those things. I've also slaughtered some of them. Thank God. Sometimes you just got to go back and destroy them before they cause any more trouble. I, was, I didn't get any response on that, but I'm going to keep going anyway. You know, sometimes we get this idea that if I just do everything just right, this is kind of reviewing some things I've talked about earlier. If I do everything just right, if I say everything just right, if I act just right, God will bless me. I'll tell you something. If God's blessing on you is based on what you do, then it's not faith. It's works. It's a human connivance. If I could just do enough good stuff, if I just give enough or do enough, those are all good things, but they're not going to cause God to bless you more than just the fact that God wants to bless you because he loves you and because he wants your life to be blessed. There's that movement that went through the faith movement that everybody had to say everything just right and everything had to be just exact. You know what? If God's no bigger than my ability to say everything just right, then God's too small. God's grace picks up where my ability to do the right thing falls off. doesn't mean I should just go out and do anything I want to, but I do know that when I mess up, God is always gracious enough to pick up. You with me? You know, and then we get to that point where because we're so looking at what we do and how we act and all those things, we start beating ourselves up when we don't do things right. And there might be some of us on both sides of that. There might be some of us in here that think, you know, I've just got this all together and I'm doing everything just right. That's an Ishmael for you. There might be others who think, I can't do any of this and just beat yourself up over how horrible you are. That's an Ishmael for you. Because neither one of those are true. We have to see ourselves the way God sees us, a broken human redeemed by his grace and his grace and by faith alone. You all with me? So I have to, if I have to trust my ability to get everything that God wants me to have, then I'm in trouble. You all with me? And if I beat myself up over everything I do wrong, I'm also in trouble. Check out this verse. I love this verse, 1 John 3.20 in the, in the God's Word translation. Whenever our conscience condemns us, we will be reassured that God is greater than our conscience and knows everything. I'll tell you what, if your conscience is beating you up over something you did, all right, take that and say, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to learn from that. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to let my conscience teach me. But don't let your conscience condemn you because God is greater than your conscience. And his grace is greater than what you've done wrong. Nudge your neighbor say, I'm pretty sure he's talking to you. And then it goes on at the end of that verse, and it says, and he knows everything. God knows everything. God knows everything. He knows stuff we don't know. We've got to get this. God knows everything. It says at the end of that verse, and he knows everything. Here's the thing about that. I don't. God knows everything. I don't know everything. So I should probably just trust God instead of myself. Anybody with me on that? So we create Ishmaels sometimes by trusting ourselves or beating ourselves up too much. Let me give you another way we might create Ishmaels. Um, we, we need finances to live. You and I, we need money to live. I mean, there's certain things we have to have and do, and it takes money to have them and do them, so we need money to live, right? 
Uh, but when we begin to look to, the, to our finances in an attempt to find contentment and peace and the blessings of God, then I think we're engaging in a form of idolatry. And sometimes we start, you know, we just start thinking, well, if I just had more money, if I had this, if I had that, we start thinking in terms of if I had, and we almost set that as an idol before us, and we start making decisions based on financial things and those kind of things. And here's what I want to say about that. Finances are a great servant. They are a horrible master. Make it really simple. Money is a good servant. It's a bad master. You do not want money controlling your decisions in your life. You want Jesus controlling your decisions in your life. Believe me. Yes? That's what we want. But sometimes we get caught up in a lot of times, especially it seems like if we're, if we're struggling in finances or something, we start thinking that, that's, that's all I need. If I had that, everything would be great. There's an old saying that money talks, right? That if you have enough money, you can get anything you want. Well, I'm going to take that idea of money talks. I have some money right here. I have a dollar bill. It's not a lot of money, but it is money. I have a dollar bill here, and George is on the front of it. And that idea that money talks, you want to hear my money talk? Listen to what my money says. Don't trust me. Did you all catch that? What did it say? Don't trust me. Don't trust me. What should we trust? What does it say on the back back here? In God we trust. I think, that's, I think it's really great that that's on there because it's a reminder that we don't trust this stuff. We trust God. And you know, we don't just trust God because his name is on our money. We trust God because he is worthy to be trusted. That idea of in God we trust first appeared on a two-cent piece back in 18, uh, excuse me, 1864. Oh, that was good. I bet you wish you had some. In 1864, um, In God We Trust showed up on a two-cent piece. It wasn't until 1956 that America adopted In God We Trust as its motto. I'm not going to take personally that that's the same year I was born. And somebody in Washington said, this guy's been born. We have to trust God. But anyway, In God We Trust... Uh, became the motto in 1957. It began to appear on our money. But let me just, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about removing in God we trust from money. And 90% of Americans are in favor of leaving it on there. Can I tell you something though? If that wasn't, if, it, if our money didn't say in God we trust, God would not think any less of us as a nation. It's not about this. I believe God loved this nation before 1956. And he will love us if this isn't on there. I mean, I think it's great that it's there, but I don't think it really makes that much difference. Our money doesn't tell us what to do. The scriptures tell us to love God. Somebody picked up on that and slapped it on a dollar bill. Great. But you know what? I think we get concerned sometimes about things that really aren't that important. God wouldn't turn his back on us as a people, as Christians, if this wasn't on our money. Let's get real about that, shall we? It doesn't make us a holy nation. Having in God we trust on American money doesn't make America a holy nation. There's only one holy nation. And it's comprised of people all over the world from various nations who believe in Jesus. That makes us a holy nation. We are a kingdom of people, 2.5 billion strong, almost one-third of the world population. That's amazing. That's incredible what we get to be part of. Isn't that right? So where should we put our trust? In this stuff? To fulfill the promises of God? Yes, yeah, necessary to have that stuff. But we don't trust that stuff, and we certainly don't love it. You know what else money says when it talks? Listen very carefully. Don't love me because I can't love you back. Did you hear it? Check out this verse with me in 1 Timothy 6.10. You guys didn't know money sound like that, did you? That's pretty cool. <laughs> Certainly the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What's the, what's the root of all kinds of evil? Love of money. Not money. Not, money is not the root of all evil. I hear people say that all the time. Money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. It's the love of money. 
You love things that can love you back. That's why the scripture says love God and love your neighbor. Because God and people can love you back. Money can't. Your truck can't. Don't love your truck. <laughs> don't love your house. Use your stuff, enjoy it, but don't love it because it can't love you back. You know what your truck's going to do someday? It's going to break down and leave you stranded. You won't love it anymore. <laughs> You'll be looking to get rid of that thing. And just, I'm going to change lovers. I'm going to try me a better truck. Because trucks aren't going to keep you satisfied. We can't love money. Because money cannot love us back. i got to get back to my verse. Certainly the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Check it out. Some people who have set their hearts on getting rich have wandered away from the Christian faith and have caused themselves a lot of grief. You know what that grief is? It's an Ishmael that comes back to harass us because we've set our affections in the wrong place. It doesn't mean necessarily that Christians have walked away from Christ. They still may be Christians, but... They've wandered away from faith in God because their faith has got placed in money and in stuff. I have to move along. Last one I want to talk about, the last thing that I think as a, ch as a church, um, as the church, at least in our nation, that we've done a pretty good job of building an Ishmael out of. We all, you know, we all need, uh, nations need governance and governments need um, leaders. But to look to governments, to look to political leaders, to look to political parties, as a source of wisdom or contentment or hope and, or guidance in life or God's blessing is an exercise in futility. Governments are not capable nor are they designed to be the blessing of God in your life. God is designed to be the blessing of God in your life. And when we put demands on governments that don't belong on them, we create Ishmaels that I guarantee you will someday come back to bite us. Because it's getting things out of order. Church's greatest Ishmael, I believe, of the last few decades is setting up this standard of good and bad, right and wrong, godly and ungodly based on politics. Be careful what you anoint as holy in politics because I don't know if there is any. Now, I'm not talking about the people in politics. I'm talking about the politics. I'm talking about the politics itself. It's a child of our own concocting and it does nothing to promote the principles of God's kingdom or bring about his promises. All it does is create division and makes the gospel less effective because the church is distracted with politics instead of with loving God and loving our neighbors, even if they're on the other side of the aisle. Look at this in Acts 13. When, non, when the non-Jewish outsiders heard this, they could hardly believe their good fortune. All who were marked out for real life put their trust in God. They honored God's way by receiving that life. Check out who got to get in on this. The non-Jewish outsiders. What about outsiders, those outside of our political ideas, outside of our political tribe? Can they actually have faith in God like we do? I mean, we're really tempted to say no to that. Can they actually be honoring God's word by receiving his life and living it out differently with a different perspective than we are? Man, we're so tempted to say no. They have to be wrong because we're right. There has to be a right and wrong. What if we are all just in this together trying to figure it out to the best of our ability and we're just different? What if politics divides people that it really shouldn't divide? Could others actually be honoring God's word in them by being different than me? Wow. I, I, I probably shouldn't have said that. Check this out in Romans 14. You cannot judge another person's servant. The master decides if the servant is doing well or not. And the Lord's servants will do well because the Lord helps them do well. It's kind of interesting not to judge someone else's servants. When we judge people, we're treating them as if they're our servants. We're putting ourselves in the place of judge and master rather than brother or sister. 
Is it possible that I'm labeling bad simply because somebody doesn't, some idea doesn't align with my politics, someone whom God is actually pleased with? Is that possible? Last verse, let me just share this with you. In the days of Hagar and Sarah, the child who came from faithless connivance, Ishmael, harassed the child who came empowered by the Spirit from the faithful promise, Isaac. The antithesis of human connivance, the only way we get away from human connivance is by fully trusting God. Not trusting our abilities, not trusting our money, not trusting our politics. Trusting God with every area of our lives. And when we do that, he brings to pass things that we could have never done on our own. Our faith in him alone, faith alone secures the promises. Not faith and the right government to support us. Not faith and enough money. Not faith and me doing all the right stuff. There are no ands. There's faith in God. If those other things play into our lives, they should play into our lives in a secondary manner and never be connected to the power of God's kingdom because they don't fit there.